Hello, I'm uh, Dr Ian Sims. I'm one of the epidemiologists from the Public Health England National Centre in Collindale. This uh, podcast is uh, a part of the special edition of uh, Sexually Transmitted Infections, uh, which is concerned with outbreaks and their management. And I'm talking to two authors from the edition who have managed outbreaks uh, in different parts of England and under different circumstances. Uh, my first uh, guest is uh, Dr Kirsty Foster, who is a consultant in health protection at Public Health England North East and uh, has been uh, investigating a, an outbreak amongst young heterosexuals in a particularly deprived area of the North East. Uh, my second guest is uh, Dr Giri Shankar, who has been investigating various outbreaks in the East of England concerned with syphilis, gonorrhea and hepatitis B. And today he's going to be talking about hepatitis B in a location in the east of England. Kirsty and uh, Gary, first of all, I'd, I'd like to ask you about um, how these outbreaks uh, came to your attention in the first place. Um, Kirsty, would you like to start? Yes, thanks, Ian. We were uh, contacted about, um, by the clinicians in a local sexual health service in Northumberland in the summer of 2011, and they'd noticed a change in the uh, types of cases that they were seeing and an increase in numbers uh, of cases of gonorrhea. And they'd really noticed over the preceding couple of months that rather than their usual uh, sort of case mix, which were uh, predominantly men who have sex with men, they'd started to see a large number of uh, young heterosexual adults uh, with gonorrhea um, and this was unusual for them, and they really wanted. They contacted us, really asking for some uh, help and advice about how to investigate this, and uh, whether they felt this was an ongoing problem and an outbreak that we really wanted to sort of get to grips with. So, from that clinical contact and that sort of observation at the clinic level, um, that's really how we picked this up in the first place. All right, and and Giri, how did uh, how did hepatitis come onto your agenda in the east of England? Thanks, Ian. I think we, we found it out in a slightly different route to, to Kirsty. For us, it was mainly uh, as a result of keeping a very close eye on our surveillance data. Uh, to explain the context in a bit more detail, uh, normally from this particular district in the east of England, we would, we would expect to see anywhere between two and four cases of acute hepatitis B in a calendar year. But uh, last year, uh, at the beginning of last year, we uh, saw four cases in the period of the first two to three months itself, which uh, kind of raised our suspicion to say something unusual is going on. And uh, we decided to look a bit more uh, deeper into it at that time. Mm, yes, I think that's how a lot of uh, outbreaks are detected. Most of the uh, outbreaks, in fact, that we deal with are found in that way. Um, but having seen that increase, how then did you work out the case definition? This is where it all starts in the outbreak investigations. What is the case definition? Um, and did you really encounter any problems working out what your case definition was, Giri? Yes, I think it's a quite a, a, a tricky uh bit in, 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 the, in the sense of our traditional, for example, gastrointestinal outbreaks, uh, which is quite well defined and uh, usually it's easy to come up with a case definition. Whereas in this case, uh, we, we, it was not that straightforward. 
as as you are aware uh, for every notified case of hepatitis acute hepatitis b we follow them up with a surveillance questionnaire mm. right, trying to identify any risk factors but in this particular instance uh, in all those four cases there were no obvious risk factors identified however there were some sort of commonalities in 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 that they were all male they were all of middle age and uh, the, during the uh, questionnaire uh, uh, administration they uh, we found out they were all married men heterosexual men uh, with either uh, uh, several partners or or long term uh, re- relationship stable relationship with mm. partners and had children what we then um, uh, decided to do was to see if there was any um, uh, uh merit in trying to sequence uh, the uh, samples that the local labs had been uh, had been keeping mm. so once these samples were sent to the reference lab we identified that they all belonged to the same sequence which was the a2 type uh, the prisoner variant type mm. so that exactly uh, helped us to hone in on the case definition uh, that we are looking at middle aged men particularly with no obvious risk factors but having a a2 pv sequence yeah so uh, as as we went along the investigation we needed to fine tune the case definition along the way Mm, so you started off thinking about heterosexual men, and then you started thinking about, you know, what are their actual sexual behaviours? Absolutely, to this? yes, absolutely. Yes. And I think uh, one of the um, key decisions that we took in the incident management team was uh, the decision to re-interview these cases in a very, very confidential setting by a specialist health practitioner. who was extremely experienced in conducting such confidential in-depth interviews. Mm, yes. And as a product of that, how did that change your view? I mean, what came out of those interviews was quite fascinating. During the confidential interviews, these cases admitted to having uh, sexual encounters with other men at a at a a uh, a uh, uh, cruising ground uh, it was in a truck stop of the major motorway in the area there they reported having unprotected sex including unprotected anal sex with up to 15 partners per week uh, in 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 a in that environment without having any knowledge about sexually transmitted infections not even hiv uh, gonorrhea syphilis uh, let alone hepatitis b so i think that that reinterview and the outcome of that completely uh, changed our focus in terms of this uh, high risk behavior from the bridging population who did not uh, consider themselves as uh, gay but considered themselves as heterosexuals but admitted to having sexual relations with other men mm. who they obviously met on various social media uh, um sites So so that um development of the case definition took quite a long time. You know, a few yes, weeks months it, in fact. It it was almost uh, to be precise I think the first um uh look at this happened in April 2015 by the time we had the sequencing data the completion of the reinterview and uh, a a clear idea of what we were dealing with it was June right. 2015. Wow. 
Yes. Kirsty, did it take that long for you to work out your case definition in the northwest, northeast? Sorry. In contrast to Giri's, which is a, a sort of complex and sensitive uh, issue that required a lot of exploration, um, our case definition and sort of defining our our outbreak area as such was uh, relatively straightforward and actually fitted much more with the sort of traditional health protection type uh, outbreaks that we deal with in that, you know, we were able to use the information from the clinicians about this being a change in the case definition. And they were very clear that these were young uh, teenagers and, and young adults. So we were able to sort of set the age definition as being under 30, really, is our, our sort of catchment age, being mm. heterosexual and being, um, initially, we started with the whole of Northumberland, which is a very large county, but actually the local information from the, the health advisors and the, the staff at the uh, sexual health service helped us really narrow that down. And although um, if you looked at this area on a map, it's a very short distance re really from uh, Newcastle and from the sort of whole Tyne and Weir uh, conurbation, actually there's very little um, social sort of mixing between young people who live in, in the area that was affected and what we were worried about was obviously if this was spreading down into a much larger population group. But in fact, uh, the local information we had both from the sexual health service and from youth services and sort of non-health se sector services that work with young people uh, in Northumberland was that actually it was quite a, a kind of discrete population who tended just to socialise in the local area. So we were able to um, state that as our kind of... Uh, case definition we use a sort of geographical radius around uh, the two sort of main small towns that were affected um, and keep that as our definition and then uh, later on in the outbreak sort of because this did actually go on to sort of three years before we defined it as closed um, we did see rises in gonorrhea in other parts of the northeast and particularly in Newcastle um, and we were concerned at that point about um, whether in fact this was the outbreak spreading and that's when we were able to use um, the NGMAS um, molecular testing and, and sort of identifying uh, the different uh, gene groups and strains of gonorrhea that were circulating to really explore that further. But certainly the um, clinical and the kind of local epidemiology, the sort of on, the, on the ground epidemiology that we were gathering didn't suggest that people were meeting partners or that there was kind of crossover between the two geographical areas. And that was actually confirmed by the molecular typing that we were able to do um, to sort of support that. I suppose it's that always that thing about there being that kind of gut feeling about, no, these are young people who aren't going into Newcastle. They're staying very much around sort of Southeast Northumberland. But having that molecular um, typing, which sort of supported that was really helpful. And we were able to compare it both to kind of current samples um, that were being collected from other clinics in the northeast area, and also historically to the grasp samples historically collected in the northeast. And we were able to compare to our sort of background uh, picture that we would expect to see in the northeast and really confirm that feeling that this was a discrete group who were of sort of sexual networks and sexual contacts within which uh, the gonorrhea continued to be transmitted for, for the length of the outbreak and probably unfortunately still is being transmitted mm, yes you, you mentioned that it went on for uh, a few years uh, how long how did your control strategy develop over that length of time 
we introduced a number of things kind of in stages, really. And in the paper, we, we sort of described that. I suppose our first step really was the, the awareness raising with um, healthcare professionals, particularly through primary care, but also in different uh, secondary care services where we thought young people might um, present with symptoms through the chlamydia screening program. But we also did uh, a lot of work with uh, the non-health services that were working with the, the sort of target group with the young uh, young people. So they had um, kind of youth service outreach into schools um, and we shared information there really just about raising awareness about uh, the importance of getting tested and uh, and also for uh, non-specialist sexual health services to refer people in to make sure that they were getting appropriate treatment, but also that the partner notification was being um, carried out. Uh, we introduced uh, enhanced surveillance uh, after a couple of months just to gather more detailed um, uh, demographic sort of information, but also exposure information and, and the sort of thing that Giri is talking about, about you know, going into more depth about where people are meeting their partners. And we were able, we used that to map different networks of um, the, the cases and their contacts to see if there was, this was a kind of one big network that was kind of uh, all interconnected. Um, one of the challenges that we found was obviously, and you know, people listening to this will be familiar with the, the challenges about the kind of missing or the untraceable contacts that didn't link everything up but we did have a couple of quite large networks where um, there were multiple partners and cases and contacts within those networks. Um, one of the, the key things that we did was um, we introduced dual testing of samples that were collected uh, through the chlamydia screening program because the target audience of the screening program was the same as really as our case definition. Um, and so did the dual uh, NAT testing for gonorrhea as well as for chlamydia on those specimens. Uh, that took quite a lot of work in from a very practical and logistical point mm. of view. Yes, I remember uh, that, yes. Um, the programme actually covered a wider area and, you know, you, you need to think through all the sort of practical knock-on effects of changing uh, testing and the importance about consent and information, but also having important, you know, clear referral pathways into services. And we did pick up cases through that. And in fact, about a third of our um, cases were detected through the uh, through samples that were collected through the chlamydia screening program. And some of those were actually people who were not positive for chlamydia. So in if it, obviously if somebody had been diagnosed with chlamydia, they're recommended to go in and get a full STI screen. But these were people who would otherwise um, have been missed. So that was an important sort of active case finding uh, method that we introduced as well. Um, but I think that the, the frustrating thing and the challenge of it was that we didn't break those behavioral patterns about unprotected sex and um, people still taking risks really. And that is, remains an ongoing uh, challenge for us, not just in Northumberland, but you know, across the Northeast. And I'm sure colleagues will be facing the same things kind of elsewhere in the country. Um, people, young people, and there's been quite a lot of uh, good qualitative work done up here in the Northeast about how people, young people view the management of their sexual risks. And actually, rather than use condoms and have protected sex, they feel they're as happy to um, have unprotected sex and then get themselves tested afterwards because the, the chlamydia screening program has been very 
um, uh, has had a very good effect in terms of reducing the stigma and uh, encouraging people to get testing, but that's actually perhaps had a bit of a uh, an unintended consequence in that people use it more as a risk mitigation approach rather than actually um, changing their behaviours yes. and not facing mm. the risks in the first place. Mm. Yes, Giri, um, could you give us uh, a bit more insight into your um, how your control strategy has developed since um, you uh, discovered, you know, the the true risks that these uh, guys were uh, taking? Yeah, I think once we completed all the in-depth confidential face-to-face interviews with these cases, and uh, what they revealed was quite startling, we. Um, at the incident management team decided that there should be some interventions uh, put in place straight away. So working with the local um, GUM services, uh, we we initiated um, uh, sending on to the site a couple of health uh, outreach workers who when they went and did their first one or two scoping visits, found out that the, the nature of the site, the nature of activity was quite staggering. It is also worth worth uh, 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 recollecting at this stage that this is not a new cruising ground or a new site. This has been one well known uh, for many years now. But what has changed in the last few years was that prior to 2012, when sexual health commissioning was undertaken by primary care trust, there was a, a commissioned outreach health promotion work uh, by the third sector operating fully in that site. Following the move uh, to sexual health commissioning to local authorities and subsequently all the budgetary cuts that every one of us in the health sector had to go through, that outreach activity ceased to exist. So what had then built up over these three years since that service stopped is perhaps what is being reflected uh, in the current scenario. We identified in terms of health, uh, health interventions uh, activities was to provide um, uh, advice on sexually health uh, transmitted infections, bloodborne virus infections, provision of condoms, distribution of leaflets, referring the um, clients there for testing for a range of sexual health infections, and also advising them to get vaccinated against hepatitis B. And uh, in addition to all this, uh, the, the, the most important one about partner notification. However, I think the huge challenge which we find with these uh, clusters is that most of the people uh, are registered on these uh, social media with pseudonames. So they, we, we, it is impossible for some of them to even identify their partners with their real names. And in most instances, they didn't even know their uh, pseudonames. So uh, it it was quite challenging. And I think over a period of um, many weeks and months, uh, we started to slowly develop some rapport with the clients there. And uh, uh, it took took a while for it to be established. And uh, what the service started as uh, once a week, then twice a week, and then went up to four weeks, four times per week, sorry, uh, of visit. So uh, initially, in the it all started in July August time last year. Uh, for example, in August we only had about 15 contacts 
for the whole of August. But in September, it went up to 35. In December, it went up to 105. In February, it was 150. So in, 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 in a span of five to six months, we could see that the people were more engaging, they were more receptive, more people got tested and more people got access to safe uh, sex message as well as uh, uh, condoms which were provided locally on site. Yes, that's that's a tremendous achievement um, to uh, to engage people in in, in what is a very um, anonymous type of setting. And I'm just wondering, you mentioned earlier on, Gary, about uh, the role of social media. Oh, did, you mentioned that there was the uh, uh, contribution social media had to uh, people networking and finding sexual partners. But is social media a big part of the sexual health service response to the outbreak? Um, I would like to think that social media can play a much bigger role in even the uh, promotion of uh, safe sexual messages and partner notification. But certainly uh, in this cluster, and I'm sure it is the case in many other clusters across the country and and across many other countries, that social media is is the predominant route by which these people meet each other or get to know each other so we we when they when it can be a powerful tool for them to get together i think we haven't tapped that potential enough to use the same platform for promoting adequate uh, and effective uh, health promotion messages so certainly in our cluster uh, we did not use any proactive uh, social media in interventions all we did was uh, to do on-site interventions physically. All right, Kirsty, was that was that your experience up in the northeast? We um, we tried to use social, or we did use social media. Um, I think one of the challenges when we reflected on this outbreak is there. Well, there are two things. I think how you develop the messages that you're going to use on social media, and it's such a changing um, sort of technology in terms of which sites people are using, how they're using it, and how people want to receive messages or not on it. I think that that's one of the big challenges for us in, when we're thinking about how we might use it in outbreak. Um, sort of control measures. We, at the time when um, this outbreak started, uh, Facebook was the sort of the more popular uh, social media sort of route that young people were using. And uh, the services in the nor- in Northumberland and in the Northeast had used Facebook uh, to promote some of the chlamydia screening messages. So that was what we used, and we used pop-up um, adverts that were linked to a- an age and postcode sort of matching, uh, so that they were targeted people in the affected area. Um, and really, but the, the messages that they were giving were just about there is an increase in gonorrhea around. If you're worried, um, click here to get messages about the services. So. The way what we could measure was that what they call the click-through sort of rate, so people actually mm. clicking on and then looking at the services, the website of the sexual health service. Um, what in with hindsight, what we didn't uh, do well really was to actually evaluate whether that made a difference in terms of people turning up. I think intuitively we thought that it would, but we don't have any sort of concrete evidence of that. And that, that was one of the things we we talked about in the paper is actually thinking about that when you're designing it, about how you might measure 
the sort of impact that it's had. And and it's difficult to say whether somebody who clicks through and looks at the website of the, the sexual health service will then actually attend or not. So you need to think about how you might capture that. And then the other thing, um, we did do some uh, focus group work with young people and got quite sort of a mixed set of messages about what they would want to see in terms of um, messages that might make them think more about their, you know, going and getting a test or not. Um, and I think there's always a, the, the, some of the feedback was that they wanted more gory messages and sort of <laughs> um, that that might have had more of an effect. And that's kind of in contra or sort of it slightly sort of in with attention with some of the, the messages around from a sort of sexual health promotion and health improvement sort of point where, where we want to reduce stigma and sort of normalize testing and not sort of do the sort of scare tactics. And we also want to be promoting good sexual health and it being part of sort of normal healthy kind of living really so I think there are some sort of tensions there about how you get the messages and what will be most effective in uh, encouraging people to test and also the whole issue around um, behavior change but I think Giri's right you know this is um, the way people are sort of communicating and meeting partners now and there's been you know lots of examples of that in the literature about how um, how it's kind of contributing to the sort of certainly with the way people are meeting partners and the sort of the anonymous nature perhaps or the, the lack of sort of clear contact details which then obviously has that knock-on effect about sort of the partner notification and getting the messages out to people so um yes we did use it but uh we i think we're kind of playing catch-up really about how best to use it in outbreaks and it's certainly a field that we'd like to do more work in really I think expertise is uh, is growing exponentially in the world of uh, social media and how to use it uh, in the health service. So uh, perhaps uh, in a few years' time we'll be talking about uh, interventions that uh, are solely based on social media. I don't know. We can't crystal ball gaze that much. Um, but you, you, you mentioned several times, Kirsty, about uh, the length of time the outbreak went on for. How did you decide when the outbreak was actually over? Well, I think the honest answer is that we um, the, the the cases kind of ebbed and flowed, but never really uh, returned back to a baseline. And we we sort of cl- what we call we closed the outbreak, but we kind of um, admitted that we uh, this was a kind of on, an ongoing. Um, issue for the the local population and something that needs to be continued to be managed um, rather than the traditional closing and outbreak where something has actually sort of gone away. Probably pragmatism with um, a bit of kind of having exhausted all our options really as the outbreak control team, if we're honest. So that really is the legacy of the outbreak investigation? Yes, I think that it it was um, a useful way of highlighting and as you know, this happened over the sort of transition period of when uh, commissioning of sexual health services moved from the health service into local authorities. So it was a way of highlighting um, to commissioners uh, some of the issues and, and to public health teams as well, you know, some of the issues that might have affected, be affecting their population. It was a useful way to um, target messages to clinicians about the, the sort of links with public health and the support that health protection teams could provide in terms of um, investigating things. And I think it also highlighted um, 
the importance of that clinical recognition of changes and letting people know early about things because this isn't this is something that would have been lost in the the, the sort of more routine surveillance data because uh, it only affected a small part of a large county um, and uh, and also the timeliness of that uh, routine surveillance data isn't designed to pick up kind of acute changes so yeah, it was yes. really useful to highlight with clinicians and we've built we've got much better and stronger links with uh, clinicians around that, I think, since this outbreak. Yes, Giri, is your outbreak over yet? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I think uh, for 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 us, uh, uh, like us to mention, the practical and pragmatic measure to say that the outcome is over was for us to see when the case numbers came back to the baseline yes, that we were yes. used to. So, following the uh, the range of interventions that were put in because of the relatively long incubation period of hepatitis B, mm. we did see a couple of cases uh, even after the introduction of the interventions towards the latter part of last year. Again, in the eight months so far in 2016, we have seen about two or perhaps three cases. But that's not that's more or less within the baseline number of cases that we would see. Mm. But we, we, we don't want to be complacent on that because this uh, particular site does not have a well-defined catchment area, catchment mm. population. People from all over the uh, country come to it, and we certainly are aware of uh, similar strain uh, cases in our neighboring patches in East Midlands. Mm. So they too uh, 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 are closely monitoring their residents. But we would still like to build on the interventions that have been put in place and e even introduce uh, other things such as um, on-site uh, vaccination for hepatitis B and also using some other non-invasive investigative screening tests such as oral fluid testings, etc. So those are all things which we have we are still thought of, but which we are yet to yet to implement those. So uh, I think we would like to keep this as an ongoing program uh, of interventions on the site, considering the the high risk that the, it, it uh, poses to the general population. So really, you're still in the control strategy stage, and you're developing that at the moment, and uh, enhancing uh, sexual health provision to this uh, uh, very high risk population at the moment is is that where you're at at the moment yes i think that would be a, that would be a, a good summary yeah. okay i think i ought to draw the conversation to a close now um, so thank you very much uh, for joining university uh, and giri and uh, i hope that uh, listeners uh, to the podcast will uh, enjoy our chat thank you thank you, thank you very much